Welcome to The Interview, where we share inspiring career stories and advice from experts and thought leaders on any and all topics, everything from college admissions tips to the latest medical and self-care advice. I'm host Leslie Heaney, and I'm excited to share these compelling stories with you. I hope you'll learn something new and hopefully share a few laughs along the way. Today on the show, I'm very excited to have Dr. Rachel Shelley joining us. Dr. Shelley is a licensed clinical psychologist at Whole Mind Psychology and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine here in New York. She specializes in the treatment of childhood anxiety disorders, and she's really about letting kids be kids while supporting them in developing essential life skills to thrive. A meta-analysis conducted in 2021 found that child anxiety has doubled globally compared to pre-pandemic estimates. So there's a real mental health crisis facing our young people, whether it's caused by social media exposure or the uncertainty of the world around them in 2023, our kids are suffering from anxiety now more than ever before. So we'll hear from Dr. Shelley and how to spot signs of anxiety in our kids and what we can do as parents to help support them. I'll also mention this interview was conducted using remote microphones, so there's a bit of spotty volume at certain times, but it doesn't distract from the important conversation with Dr. Shelley. So with that, now here's Dr. Shelley. Dr. Shelley, um, studies show that in recent years, anxiety levels in children have gone up significantly. Um, I'm sure you probably have seen, um, that as well in your practice. What do you attribute that to? Yeah. So we have definitely seen soaring rates of mental health challenges among children, adolescents, and their families over like the course of the pandemic and post-pandemic. Um, I think it's important to note that this, like the pandemic exacerbated a situation that already existed um, right. prior. And um, what do we attribute the rise to is likely multifactorial. It's likely not just one thing that is leading to more anxiety in children. Um, there's, this is probably like one of my most frequently asked questions by parents. Like, why are my kids so anxious when I'm I know. I think we're, yeah, we're, we're looking for the answer, right? Because um, I think we see it in ourselves that it wasn't as stressful to be a child when we were kids um, as it is for our kids today. Yeah. Um, parents always say to me, like, when I was a child, we didn't talk about anxiety. Like, yeah. that wasn't, we just, like, did what we had to do. So, like, why now are my kids so anxious? Um, and I always say to parents, like, to remember modern childhood today is really different than 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of really high expectations and pressure to succeed in a yeah. way that, that wasn't there. Um, and I think it's important to note that this can be like within a child's home, like parents that are putting a lot of pressure on kids, but it can also be just within their environment. So even the really low key parents that are not pressuring their children, their child may still feel this pressure to succeed from their peers, from their school environment or from their community. Um, right. So I think that's one factor that I like to keep in mind is like, there's these high, high expectations. Um, there was a survey done that I found really interesting that asked incoming college freshmen if they feel overwhelmed by all they have to do. And in 
1985, only 18% of freshmen felt overwhelmed. In 2000, 20 I, I was in the other 22%, <laughs> or 82%. You can, I'm sorry, you can see, you know, it probably speaks volume about my, my um, college experience, getting my math wrong on that. But, um, but for sure, yeah. And what is it today? I'm sure it's... In 2016, 41% of college students yeah. felt it. Yeah. Well, I just got back from touring um, some colleges with our daughter who's 17 and going through that process. And I mean, the accomplishments of these kids that were giving the presentations before the tours, I mean, I, it gave me anxiety and I don't even have to, you know, go through the application process. Um, she does the poor thing, but you know, the expectations and the output of these kids, because they're obviously feeling the need to try to rise to that standard, whoever's setting it or however it got here, I don't know. But, um, but it's a lot. It's definitely a lot for them. Yeah. So we have like this pressure on kids. Um, they're applying with resumes that most, I don't think I had when I was yeah. applying for my first job. Um, so that's one big factor. I would say there are societal challenges, political issues, um, war, I don't think we have to go too into it, um, but definitely society is a, a bit more tense now. And there's also like less of a sense of community. We've really shifted more to like a very individualistic culture. Um, yeah. And so it, we have this as well in their environment. And then I would say the other factors, I think, um, are a little, we have a bit more control over. So I think it's nice to, to talk about these factors as well. So a big one is the role of technology. Um, and studies have shown like over and over again that children are getting conditioned to like avoid discomfort through the use of electronics. So gaming, social media have like in some ways replaced a, a lot of opportunities to build resilience and mental strength. So they're not necessarily like knocking on the neighbor's door to see if a friend is home to play. They might just play with a virtual friend on a video game. Um, that's interesting. So while it's kind of, it's a, depriving them of building that, that skill set or that resilience, um, it's also kind of shifting it to one that maybe isn't as healthy or realistic or real, right? Because mm -hmm. they're, maybe they're interacting on social media on Instagram and, you know, that's not real, but it, everything looks, looks perfect, right? Which is a, an additional pressure, yeah, this like toxic positivity, like we should be happy all the time. Yeah. And so you have kids escaping discomfort through technology. So it's like this constant distraction. And then depending how they're using technology, and it's not all equal, right? Um, they might even be getting more messages from others like, oh, my life is perfect. I'm so happy all the time, which could make them feel even more anxious or upset right. about themselves. Uh, so th those are two really big factors, I think, that are new in the past 20 to 30 years. We're looking at kind of those are the external factors. Then how how do we as parents, what do we, besides our child telling us, like, I feel anxious or I feel nervous, what can we look for to kind of help identify if they are experiencing what what I guess you would consider real anxiety versus just, you know, 
kind of normal nervous jitters before, you know, a test or a dance or something. Mm-hmm. What, what do we kind of um, want to look for, for sort of anxiety that's, that you, you would see as kind of bordering on problematic? Yeah. So anxiety is like this, like very general term um, to distra- describe worry or nervousness. Um, and some anxiety is like really healthy um, and motivates us to do what we need to do in many circumstances. But like, what should you look for to understand if it's more of an anxiety disorder or more problematic? Uh, I think sleep is always, I always look at like kind of our um, health behaviors of sleeping. How is your child sleeping? Are they having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep in a way that is new, a change from their baseline? Uh, Frequent complaints of stomach aches or headaches, I think are really common, especially in younger children. Um, But again, this, we would want to see a change. If your child has always had a sensitive stomach and always complained, of stomach aches, not necessarily quite as uh, credible of a a sign. I would say that avoidance of situations is a big flag. So if your child no longer wants to have playdates or sleepovers or is not talking in their classroom or to new adults or is fearful of new activities and they're, they're kind of retreating, um, that's, a, that's a big warning sign that maybe they're experiencing some anxiety. And then in younger, younger kids, you would probably, what about the, the, the um, so, sort of trying to understand shyness and kind of clingy children versus more anxious um, kids. Yeah, I, I think some anxiety and fears are really normative in child development. Like it's normal for a child to be to experience some separation anxiety in early childhood. Um, it's also normal for kids to be fearful of um, like monsters under their bed or in yeah. their closet, right? These are normal childhood worries that we want to see kind of ebb and flow and then kind of dissipate and shift into um, kind of the next developmental stage. So for example, if your child is struggling to separate the first few days going into preschool, that's likely normative. However, if that clinginess is continuing and you're in December, January, February, when most other children have adjusted to that separation, that might be more of a flag that this is a true anxiety. Okay. And then, I mean, other things. So as they get older, some of these anxieties might play themselves, not just kind of on the playground, but in the in an academic environment. I mean, you know, one of the things I was reading, they may have difficulty concentrating or difficulty attending and mm-hmm. in class could be linked in some way to anxiety. Yeah. So uh, concentration, if you've ever been really anxious about something or worried yeah. about something coming up, it's impossible to focus on what's in your present environment. Uh, your okay. mind becomes so preoccupied. And so often kids um, could be flagged as being like inattentive or having an attentional difficulty. Right. However, they might, you have to really assess to make sure that there's not an anxiety component first, um, because you, you can only assess their ability to attend to things if they're not worried about something. Right. 
And what, so that would be kind of in that kind of academic environment. They're worried about participating because they're anxious that they might say the wrong thing or that I've heard heard from my kids. Well, that I don't want to ask a question because it's a stupid question. Like, how do you know it's a stupid question? I mean, I think even adults can experience that anxiety in certain environments. So that's sort of what you mean when you're saying, right, that they, that that kind of trouble concentrating or trouble attending might be really linked to them just being anxious about um, participating or kind of moving forward with the exercise because it's linked to some other anxious feelings or, um, or thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Another example of that might be if a child sits down to take a test and they're so worried, like, am I going to get this right? Am I going to finish in time Right. that they can't get the pen on the paper to solve the problems? Yeah. So they can't even, they are trouble, they're having trouble concentrating on the fact, on the math say, or the problem set because their mind is so preoccupied about a different fear. Yeah. What about, so um, sort of mentioned some of the behaviors to look for for younger kids, adolescents. I mean, if you even see them because they spend so much time in their room and it's so hard to figure out what they're, what they're thinking if they, or what they're, you know, because they sometimes barely talk to you, but um, what would you, what kind of things should parents look for there in terms of behaviors that might be linked to anxiety? It's because I think the societal pressures the things we talked about earlier that kind of put that pressure on them to be anxious, like whether it's toxic positivity through social media or video games, or they're not as um, kind of present with their peers. Um, what 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 kind of things would you be red flags? For you. Yeah, uh, for teens, I think some of them are the same, right? Changes in diet or sleep, um, avoidance of certain situations. So like if your child is not um, reaching out to talk to friends, if uh, they're asking mom like, oh, well, will you contact their mom to set up a time to hang out? Maybe they're nervous about asking right. peers. So if they're avoiding certain things that you would imagine a child of that age would be able to do meeting with a teacher. Um, that That could be a sign. I would say the other big one in teens that we're mindful of is uh, their mood might be more impacted. So they might be more down. Um, they might, uh, be more isolated than you would like them to be. So I think we see more of a mood impact in teens, whereas in younger children, you might see more like tantrums, like big behaviors. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so with those kind of the examples that you gave, let's say, you know, your, your teenager says, I don't really want to go to that dance. None of my friends are going, or I don't know who's going to be there. What, does that kind of present to you as normal anxiety or is that something that um, I guess if it's a one-off maybe then you wouldn't really identify it as something that's problematic or what, what were your thoughts about things like that? Yeah, I'm not was, speaking from personal experience. No, it's it's a great like, question. Great teenage examples. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's a great question. So you always have to think about like individual examples within the context of your whole child. So if they're avoiding one dance on a, you know, Friday night, but they've attended previous dances, they're engaging with their friends or playing sports or meeting with their teacher, like, 
The reason they don't want to go to the dance is probably more social, developmentally appropriate, not necessarily anxiety. However, if avoidance of the dance is one of many examples of your child avoiding things, that's when we would want to think about, well, how can we help them take steps towards this? So you mentioned um, earlier that, you know, not all anxiety is bad, right? That there are, are, you know, good forms of anxiety and that we need anxiety as as humans on some level, right, to kind of help us... um, probably perform in certain circumstances, what would you just kind of describe as sort of healthy? I think you hit on some points, but yeah, um, I think this is like such an important topic to cover because not all anxiety is a disorder and is problematic. I always tell kids um, and parents when I start to work with them that like anxiety at its core is like designed to keep us safe. So it's like, what works in our body when we're truly in a dangerous situation. For instance, like on a busy road, it's feeling a little bit anxious that helps us like jump back if a car were to swerve or, right? So it it helps us attend to what's important and dangerous in our environment. Um, And that type of anxiety can be really helpful and more practical level, like, A child having a little bit of anxiety about their performance on a test motivates them to study and prepare. If they're not anxious at all, they might just like go out with their friends all day and then not study and then just take the test. Um, The I would say that how you can distinguish between what's like a healthy dose of anxiety versus more of an anxiety disorder is um, based in a few things. One is that if the anxiety is really, really intense and starts popping up in relatively safe situations, that's okay. when we start to think about, well, is this more of an anxiety disorder? For example, is a child having a reaction as if a car is swerving at them to calling a friend on the phone? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the big key that we always look for when assessing anxiety is like, is it interfering in the child's life? Is it getting in their way? Um, so going back to the study example or test example, if the anxiety is so intense that the child can't concentrate, can't complete the test, right. maybe is so nervous in the morning is begging mom not to go, right? That's too much anxiety compared to that healthy dose that just motivates them to study and then to go take the test. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? So- Yeah, those are kind of, so you talk about as parents when we should be concerned, it's when it really crosses that line and becomes something that seems to be um, happening more often than not, right? Mm -hmm. And and seems to be um, kind of outside of what parents would kind of maybe identify as as a normal behavior. Like you use the example of the preschooler in January, February, still not wanting to separate. what about procrastination? I mean, I'm not, I, again, not speaking from personal experience, but I, I look at, at that, you know, could that be something that you would identify in some circumstances as anxiety because you're being avoidant in a way? I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. It can be anxiety. It can also be normative child behavior. Um, And again, going back to like always looking at it in the context of the whole child. So are they procrastinating because they are so fearful of their performance on it? Or are they procrastinating because the movie they're watching is just so good and they don't want to get up, right? right? right. And so one is understanding like why they're doing it. Is it based because of a fear? Two, like how frequent are they engaging in this procrastinating behavior? Is it getting in the way of their life? Right. Okay. So that's the standard. Is it getting in the way? Getting in the way. It's not going to meet with their teacher over and over again. Um, you know, again, not speaking from personal experience, but that, that might be something that would be a red flag. I always tell parents to look at the intensity of it, how frequent it's happening and how long it's been going on. Okay. And I know that, um, there are also different kinds of anxiety, right? It's just not one size fits all. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, kind of the different types and what, you could sort of look for in identifying what, what you think might be, um, you know, the type of anxiety that your child may, may be um, grappling with. Yeah, there are many different types. I'm happy to name a few and kind of give a brief overview. Um, separation anxiety, we tend to see in early childhood. However, I will say post-pandemic, I am seeing it in much older children than typical. Um, oh, they, that's a fearfulness around being separated from their parent or caregiver. Uh, they might be very clingy. Uh, they might not. They might get very nervous in anticipation of their parents traveling or them going somewhere. Um, and that's, you know, a separation anxiety. Another anxiety is a social anxiety, which we've talked, I've shared a few examples of, um, that's like this extreme self-consciousness around other people, new adults or other kids. They tend to be like, so afraid of being embarrassed that they might avoid social situations. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, you brought up the pandemic with separation and social anxiety, and I think that affects some adults. I mean, even I, I remember getting back in the saddle, and I feel like I I love being around other people, and you realize you're kind of out of practice being in big groups or in mm-hmm. events and stuff. So obviously, that has to have an effect on kids who were not, you know, probably as um, as um, used to attending those kinds of things, like being back in his classroom, being at a school event, being at a, at a birthday party, um, definitely could be, uh, you know, a, 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 something they need to kind of get used to acclimating into again. Yeah. So it's all how we respond to that anxiety that really, uh, shapes the course if it's going to get worse or going to get better. So okay. post pandemic say, you and I stopped attending all adult functions um, and I stopped presenting or talking in lo- to yeah. large groups, that anxiety and fear would, would be maintained because I would never get to learn like, oh, wait, I can handle this. I can talk to yeah. people again. Um, and so that's the same for children with, with social anxiety and separation anxiety. They The reason anxiety increased in the pandemic is they didn't have practice in those situations. And so if they came out of the pandemic or, you know, and 
gradually got back into a classroom and gradually separated from their caregivers, they're likely adjusted just fine um, as long as they were able to get that practice. It is interesting. Friends of mine and people I know who tend to be more introverted or, or who tend to um, not enjoy going to larger events as much still sometimes use COVID as a reason why they, I think for some, it was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I don't have to go to a dinner party, you know, but, um, but of course we all have to eventually um, adjust there. And then I guess in addition to separation and social, there's some phobias, right. That are also kind of an anxiety group and then obsessive compulsive disorder that I don't want to go too off piste and getting into that. Cause I'm sure that can be a whole other conversation, but that also, right. Could be something that is, um, related or in the same family as anxiety. Yep. So the other, uh, you touch two out of the three of the other ones. So, um, the first one I'll touch on is generalized anxiety. And this is like kind of these uncontrollable worries about a lot of everyday things and the worries sort of shift from topic to topic. And the opposite of that is kind of like a specific phobia where the child is just super intensely fearful of one thing. Okay. Um, and then you, uh, the, so this could be a phobia could be like crowds, vomiting, small spaces, but the anxiety is all around like one topic. Okay. Um, and then you hit the nail on the head, like obsessive compulsive disorder is its own category. Um, it's typically considered, it's an anxiety disorder, um, but can be a little bit different than the other ones I mentioned. And it's really when, uh, a child has thoughts, fears, or worries, but then they develop rules or rituals that they must follow to mitigate that anxiety. Okay. And typically the rules or rituals, um, it doesn't always have to be the case, but they're usually illogically connected to the fear. So like if a child is afraid of something bad happening and then they engage in um, like ritualistic counting, So the counting is kind of reducing their anxiety of something bad happening. Yet I think we can both acknowledge that counting isn't going to, you know, change the future. So there tends to be kind of this illogical connection in OCD. Okay. All right. So now that we've scared everyone who's listening about all all the different types and what we can look for, if we are seeing some of these behaviors in our children or even in our spouse or in ourselves. Um, what, what, what can we do? I mean, what, what, what's next? What, what do we do? What do we say? And I guess it's a, it's not just one simple answer. It's a much broader conversation, but what do you tell parents now that you've identified that their child has a level of anxiety that kind of is outside of the normative range? What's, what's next? And, and how do you approach that, that, um, that, kind of therapeutic or that work with them? That's a great, a great question and a big question for a I know, time. I know. Um, but I'm going to try to answer it. So I think the a few like very practical things to do are when a child is anxious is to really acknowledge and validate their fear. So we often are really quick to say to kids, don't worry about that. Like, just stop worrying enough. Like, and, but to that child, that fear is very real to them. 
And so whenever I start working with parents, like the first step is even if you're not afraid of the same thing, it's really important for the child to hear, like, I hear you, you're really nervous about your math test. What about things like, and I think I've, I've read this or heard this, you know, let's say a child is anxious about, um, something under their bed or, or ghosts or something saying to them, there's no ghosts. There's nothing under your bed. Doesn't that, and I don't know where I've read this. Doesn't that in some ways validate that there's a possibility that there could be something under their bed? (laughs) I mean, that was always my response. There's nothing under your bed. Go to sleep. What is the, what is the answer to that? Or the right answer? That's what we call reassurance. Okay. So you're, you're giving your child reassurance, which tends to work in the short term, but it doesn't actually help them challenge their fear. What we really want to communicate to a child is that I hear you, you're afraid there's a monster under your bed, and I know you can go to bed regardless. Like, I know you can tolerate that that fear because now you're building resilience. I know you can okay. tolerate being worried and, and about that and still lay down and go to sleep. So when we, when we just kind of quickly respond, and we're all guilty of this, yeah. of, um, oh, there's no monster under our bed. one, the child is like, wait, but I'm really afraid of that. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's legit. It's legit to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so step one is validate their fear. And then instead of reassuring it in a sort of short-term way, we challenge it by saying, well, first, I guess we say, I hear you, that you're worried that there's a monster under their bed. Do you think we should say, even if there is a monster under your bed, I know you can handle it. I know you can still go to sleep. Yeah. Yep. You want to instill some confidence in their ability to cope. So okay. the the second, the, you know, so first we're validating the fear. And the second step is like, you want to push your child actually towards the thing they're afraid of. Okay. What parents often do um, because they are loving and caring about their child is they accommodate their child. And what I mean by accommodate is they sort of shift their behaviors to keep their child comfortable. So, for example, if a right. child is really afraid of, uh, we can use the same example, of monsters under their bed, a parent might start to lay down with them at night. It might say over and over again, I promise you there's no monster. I promise you there's no monster. I promise you there's no monster, right? And as they adjust their behavior, they're one, telling their child that's something to be afraid of. Yeah. Two, they're communicating to their child, like you can't handle tough things. And over time, that actually makes the fears become enormous. Okay. That's really interesting. So how, what kind of example could we use for that in kind of the preteen adolescent age group? Right. Um, so let's say your child's afraid of, you know, going to a social situation, Mm -hmm. meeting new kids, you know, at, at the party that you're dragging them to, 
we would use the same steps validating. I know it's uncomfortable sometimes to be in a room where you don't know anybody, but I know you can handle it. And I know you can handle it. And I know you can handle it. Yeah. And you might even give them like a specific challenge. And I know that you can introduce yourself to two people. Okay. Um, but to, uh, to the, an example of the way parents accommodate those be, those yep. situations is one, they might not make their child go. Um, right. They might say, no problem, stay home. Two, they might talk for their child in those situations. So a classic example of this is like a, a a teen or preteen is afraid of talking to new adults. So when they go to a restaurant, the parent orders for the, for the child. Okay. That's an accommodation. We would much prefer the child start to practice, like saying to the waiter, I'll have the grilled cheese, please. Um, and get that practice so that they can challenge their fear that talking to new people is not quite as scary as it feels. Okay. That's really helpful. And then, you know, I don't know if we're actually engaging in that right now when talking about these different steps, but I have read that kind of the, the best treatment or um, therapeutic tool to give to someone who's suffering from anxiety is to teach them how to use cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And um, do you want to talk, will you talk about that and how that works um, and sort of I, I think, and you would know obviously much better than I, that that, that is kind of the 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 best um, treatment method for anxiety for for kids and for adults. Yep. So CBT is like the gold standard approach for anxiety. For, yep, for children and adults. It's really based on this premise that what we think about affects how we feel, and it affects what we do or how we act. And CBT is all about like changing our thoughts or behaviors um, so that we can indirectly change our emotions or the intensity of our emotions. So like specifically in anxiety, when kids are anxious, they tend to avoid the things that make them worried or uncomfortable. And okay. parents can play a role in that. They can facilitate more avoidance or facilitate more exposure. Um, but when a, a child avoids something they're afraid of, they feel better in the moment. Right. Or over time, as they keep avoiding their fears, the fears get bigger and bigger, and it starts creating problems in their life. So what CBT does is we actually gradually help children engage in what we call exposures. So we work with the child to gradually expose them to the things that trigger their anxiety, but in very small and like calculated steps so that the child can get used to the anxiety and learn to tolerate it to then move on to the next step. Can you give me maybe an example for kind of the younger kid, you know, um, elementary, younger child, elementary age, and then the adolescent um, Sure. Example. So if for a younger child, if a child's really afraid of separating from mom and dad, um, maybe to go to a drop-off play date, 
So we might build what we call a fear ladder that has gradual steps to help the child practice being apart from their parent um, at okay. a play date. And what that might look like, the first step might be actually having a play date at your house um, where the parent isn't in the room, but maybe is like in the kitchen and kind of separated and maybe steps out for five minutes, assuming their supervision, and then yeah. comes back. Um, and that might be step one. And step two might be walking by a friend's house where they might have a play date. And step three might be the parent goes to the play date and stays for 10 minutes, leaves for five, and then comes back and stays with the child for the remainder. And then we might kind of like gradually increase this time um, so that the child can acclimate and adjust to being apart from their parent at a play date. And I I know some sometimes when I do this with parents, they're like, oh, these steps, they're so tiny. Yeah. Um, and they're just like, I just want to drop them off. Like, I'm just going to drop yeah. them off and I'm going to run out. And you, we really can't do that. It goes back to, that's what we call flooding, um, where we really make the child very, very anxious to kind of habituate to it very quickly. Um, I think it goes back to what I said at first. Like, we really have to acknowledge and validate, like, for the child, they are terrified. And that would be like for an adult who's afraid of flying on an airplane, taking their first flight to Australia. Right. Okay. <laughs> Which no one wants to do. In coach. I mean, by the back of the, yeah, something horrible, something horrible. Um, that's really interesting because that, as you're sitting there describing that, that was exactly the thought that I had like, oh, geez, I'm glad <laughs> I'm out of those younger years because, but I remember um, our two of our children's preschool, that's what they did. It was like the first day was five minutes, then 10. I mean, they weren't going to school for three hours <laughs> until Christmas. And I'm not kidding. And all of us thought it was nuts that we're sitting outside in the waiting room waiting, but maybe they had a method to their madness. Um but that is interesting. And what about trying to like, when you're having that conversation with your child, I'm going to step out for five minutes. It probably isn't helpful to try to rationalize with them, right? You, you don't say to them, I'm, I'm leaving for five minutes. You're safe. You're here. I mean, how do you, do you see, cause it seems like we, the, the fear in some ways isn't rational. So we don't want to even get into the weeds, right. Of trying to, I mean, I'm very guilty of that explaining the situation and why it's reasonable that they should feel one way or the other. Yeah, probably. You, you just want to be very clear and direct with what you're going to do. So I okay. would tell parents to sort of say, hey, we're going to start practicing drop-off playdates and or separating because it's important that you're able to do that. And me as your parent want you to be able to handle that. So on Friday... I'm okay. going to stay with you for 10 minutes and then leave for five and then come back. And I trust that you got this. Right. And then when they say, no, no, I don't want you to leave Teddy's house for five minutes. You say, no, I know you can handle it. We're yeah, going to do it. And I, I know totally you can handle it. totally get that you're scared. Yeah. I know that you're scared and it makes sense you're scared because this is something new that we're doing. Okay. And I, I know that you got this. Let's see how okay. it goes. Great. Right. Okay. Um, and then on the more kind of preteen adolescent example, which yes. could be going to the dance or it could be 
I mean, a whole host of things. So for a teen, I would say typical kind of... Example would be probably more socially driven. Um, so a teenager that maybe is afraid of asking a friend to hang out with them. They get really, really nervous if they initiate a hangout. Um, and so I might work with the teenager on gradually um talking to the friend on text message. So often my teens will say, oh, I only reply on a group text. I never start a group text and I never text individually with someone um, because they're they're too nervous that they might say something embarrassing. So we might make a ladder around like initiating a conversation on a group text, then initiating saying hello or what's up on an individual text to working up to seeing, oh, are you around on Friday, to actually making a plan with somebody. And we would kind of do that very gradually um, so that they can gain evidence that they can handle that, uh, that situation. Okay. And it must be difficult when you're doing those steps with a teen and there's a setback, right? Or it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Because I guess part of it was what you're saying is, you know, we know you can handle it. And then they could say, well, I tried it and you, and they didn't respond back or they didn't, how do, how do you, what kind of support as parents, what would be the, your next kind of suggestion to that child? Yeah. I get that all the time, especially with social exposures, because I can't control the other party. And I had a teenager um, who did this in, in, finally worked up to asking someone to hang out and they left them on read, which I had to look up what that meant. Um, essentially means they read the message and they could see they read it, but they didn't reply. Um, oh, and the child God. was really anxious. But to me, that's actually best case scenario in a lot of ways, because everything about anxiety is avoidance of discomfort. And what I try to support children and parents and teens and is that life is uncomfortable. And when things are uncomfortable, you don't have to run from it. You can handle it. And often what happens in that example, like where they do get kind of shut down, so to speak, is the child realizes, wait, that wasn't such a big deal. Like that was yeah. my worst fear. And I'm fine. Like, I'm going to go to tennis and then I'm going to see my other friends. And they just, they learn actually, like I can totally handle that rejection and go on with my day. Okay. What about, I mean, I, I know our, I, our, our kids are getting these tools and they're pre- presuming that they're, they're working with someone like you or they, they're learning CBT. Um, I know there's another treatment that I've read about called space mm-hmm. that actually has to do with what we can do as parents, because as I use the example of me with the monster under the bed, clearly I've been doing it all, a lot of things all wrong for a while. Um, how does that work? And I think it has something to do with accommodations you were mentioning earlier, but you know, how, what, what, what can we do to do a, a better job or to, to start to help um, working with our, our kids um, 
on helping to reduce their anxiety. Yeah. So space is a newer treatment um, that I really love. You only work with the parents, not the child directly. And it's all about shifting the way parents are responding to their child's anxiety. And again, reducing these accommodations, which I've mentioned a few times. Accommodations are essentially anything that the parent is doing to keep their child comfortable. And some accommodations are like completely normal. Um, For instance, if you have a very young child, you might accommodate by going to dinner earlier, right? That by nature is an accommodation, by definition is an accommodation, but it's an appropriate one. The accommodations that that this is more about is like, accommodations that are preventing your child from facing the thing they're afraid of. So if a child is afraid of drop-off playdates, and so you're always staying, space would work at reducing the parent's uh, behavior of of staying there. Okay. And then what about, let's say you're, you're working with your child uh, or your child's working with professional on CBT or just on, you know, generally, working through their anxiety, some, sometimes, you know, at least I've read that sometimes it's the, the therapy alone is not enough, mm-hmm. that that medication can be helpful to them. Um, do you want to talk about kind of when, at what point you would recommend that or what, what parents should look for in, in deciding whether that's something they should talk to their healthcare provider about? Yeah. So medication can be really helpful. It's not usually the first line approach for kind of mild or moderate anxiety. Um, we typically try behavioral therapy first um, for more severe anxiety. I think meds and CBT together can be really effective. Okay. I think for parents, um, if they're already engaged in therapy and their child's anxiety is so intense that they can engage in the exposure practice, that tends to be um, an indicator to refer for meds. I often just tell parents like meds are like they kind of like turns down like the volume, the the dial of the anxiety and then the child might be able to better engage in therapy. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend who was was talking about their child who's at college and is really having a tough time engaging and. I suggested to her that maybe she he wants to go see a therapist. She said he's seeing someone at school. And I said, well, maybe he might need an SSRI, you know, or medication. Mm-hmm. And she never linked the two or never thought to talk to. So anyway, it's helpful, I think, just for parents to know that that might be something that, you know, particularly for adolescents or, or college age students, if that is that they ca- they have been shown, I guess, in studies to be effective in helping, as you said, to kind of turn down the volume a little bit. Yeah. And I I think whenever, if a child is already in therapy, um, it's great to always ask the therapist, like, when would you consider meds? Like, what are we looking for? How would we know if we need meds or we don't need meds? And how do you gauge that? Well, speaking of that, what would you, uh, anyone who's listening and is thinking, gosh, I wonder if my child or my own anxiety is in is a little bit over the line from what might one might consider um, in the normal range to something that might need a little more support, where do, where do people go? How do they find you know a healthcare provider near them? And what are kind of the questions that they might want to ask? I know um, 
you know, from my own experience in this space a little bit, find talking to people that do or providers that, that know how to do cognitive behavioral therapy, because it is something you have to be trained in. Right. So that might be one of the questions. But um, anyway, I'll let you answer the question. I so mean, answer your question, but I um, I'd love to hear your thoughts if, if there's a, a site or a word of mouth or what, you know, how, where do people go? So I, that's a million dollar question right now. Like, where do you find a provider? Um, right. There is a huge, huge shortage of providers uh, for mental health treatment in general. And it's so hard to find a child and adolescent specialist. Yeah. And I I say that not to be all down and doom and gloom, but I, if you're uh, any parents listening that have been like, I've called 10 places and I can't find somewhere like it's not you. Um, right. It is really a, a hard time to find treatment. I think that what I encourage parents to do is to always reach out to their counselors at their child's school, as well okay. as their pediatricians, because both of those school and pediatricians tend to have a list of providers that they collaborate with and know more personally um, okay. and might be able to like help you help you find treatment. And those are usually the best starting points. Okay. That um, makes sense. But I know because it's probably in some circumstances, you don't want to ask your friend for a referral. It could be a personal thing and you're, that your child's mm-hmm. struggling with and you want to maintain their privacy. And so um, pediatrician is a great, great recommendation and, and um, school counselor is a good one too. Um, so any other tips besides for us to stay calm and that, you know, wine is always available for those of us seeking an outlet, um, like that one. Um, I mean, what, what would you say as parents sort of like as final takeaways, we just want to be kind of observant of our, what's going on with our children and, and, um, see if things are kind of happening, um, more frequently or in some way would be something you'd, you'd, you know, might consider becoming more of a, a more frequent occurrence than something that's kind of a one-off. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think um, everything you said is really important and always keeping an eye on anything that feels like a big change in your child right. um, or if avoidant behaviors are really getting in the way of doing things that you would imagine a child their age should be doing, I think is a broader takeaway for parents um, is in this like day and age, it's so important to provide opportunities that foster resilience as opposed to protect and shelter your child. Parenting approaches have shifted in the past like 20, 30 years or so. Um, I'm sure many are familiar with like helicopter parenting. Yeah. We're, Parents sort of watched over everything their child did to more recently that what's called like lawnmower parenting or snowplow parenting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have not heard the lawnmower, the snowplow. I have definitely heard, um, but that's hilarious. The lawnmower is almost more accurate because it's like 
breaking up and, you know, removing the thing as opposed to just kind of pushing it aside. That's hilarious. Yeah, I guess either apply. Um, And both are, you know, either name is referring to this idea that parents are sort of paving a path where when their child hits something that's uncomfortable or is challenging for them, the parents sort of intervene and accommodate to keep their child comfortable. And the way this is connected to anxiety is that that children are not develop children are not having as many opportunities to cope with tough emotions and then when they do face something that's difficult for them they don't have those coping skills to regulate and persevere yeah. And so I would say one big factor in kind of this rise in increase, this rise in anxiety is these lack of opportunities to foster resilience. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a result. I mean, I can speak to my own experience. To me, you know, interfering with everything and being involved with everything is sort of, I see it as, oh gosh, aren't I, you know, being such an involved parent because we're all 70s or most of us, maybe there's some 80s generation listening to the podcast, but, um, you know, our, our group, you know, in our generation, our parents didn't know where we were half the time, mm-hmm. um, which had, as you point out, had it had its own benefits for us, right? Uh, having us have the opportunity to navigate those, those circumstances. And our kids, I think, as a sort of a backlash to that uh, mode of parenting, our generation tends to be a little more thinks that we're being a better parent by managing these things to make the, the road smoother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about balance. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I think a, a good example that I use to illustrate this point is like in sports, when I was a child, I was competitive soccer and tennis player. And like, if I didn't win the game, I didn't get a trophy. Like right. I just no. didn't, you were the, you lost. Yeah. And now when I see kids play sports, every team, every kid leaves with a medal and a trophy. And yeah. I think that's an example of how like, it's not only parents, it's also within our communities that we don't want any child to feel bad. We don't want them to feel like they lost. We want them to feel included and cheered on. And there's downside. There's pros to that, but there's also downsides to that um, in that children are not getting to learn. I can handle losing and then I'm going to put forth more effort next time to try to win. Oh, totally. I mean, I... I um... One of our, my children had their school dance and we asked about slow dancing. You know, did you slow dance with anyone? Here I have like, you know, <laughs> you two's with or without you in my head. And I'm like, how'd it go? And like, oh, we don't, we're not allowed to slow dance. And I thought maybe it had to do with people being concerned about touching or consent or something. And it was, no, it's because they don't want to have kids that aren't asked to slow dance they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So it all has to be group dancing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh geez, like th- this is really, you know, setting these kids up for some, some hurt feelings later. Yeah. Well, it's, it's trying to prevent any hurt feelings. Yeah. And yeah. so as children are not developing these coping skills, not having these opportunities, they're not developing these coping skills. So when they do face situations that are hard for them, they have no way to regulate. And I think that's a big factor in why we're seeing a rise of a rise in anxiety. Um, I'll just share briefly a few other of the reasons um, are like high expectations and pressures to succeed. Yep. Um, 
there's more societal challenges, which I don't think we need to go too into, but I think we can all acknowledge like the world is a little bit tougher. Um, And then the last thing, and this connects to um, what we started with is like the role of technology and how social media and uh, video games and technology can sort of provide this like constant distraction from discomfort. Right. So the more that we sort of protect and accommodate and keep kids comfortable, the less opportunities they have to build coping skills to tolerate discomfort. And I think you and I and most listeners can agree that life is really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's hard. And so if you sort of protect and take care of everything for your child and pave this perfect path, that's fine when they're under your roof. But once they want to launch and be independent adults, they're not going to have any of those coping skills to to roll with the tough stuff. So I, I think... As you know, if you're a parent of a young child, really, or even a teen, it's never too late. Provide everyday opportunities that are hard for them. Put them in situations that are difficult for them so that they can develop these coping skills to deal with tough emotions. Okay. That's really, that's extremely helpful. Um, I, I just made a note, opportunities that offer resilience, I think is a great, great um takeaway for all of us, because it is, it's, it's also that, um, that dynamic sometimes where, you know, I don't want to play basketball anymore. I hate it. I'm bad at it, you know, and sort of understanding as a parent when you need to expose them to the things that they, um, that might be more challenging for them. And then at what, at what point, um, you know, do you let them walk away? But I guess that's a whole other conversation on resilience, which we, <laughs> I'm sure we could have at another time, but I don't want to take up all your time. But um, Dr. Shelley, that was terrific. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning. And um, it gives me, um, you know, a lot to think about. Um, and I'm sure it does our listeners too. So thank you so much. So Thanks for having me. Great to see you. A huge thanks again to Dr. Rachel Shelley for joining us on the interview with Leslie Heaney. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram at the interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. But until then, this is Leslie and don't forget to join the interview. The interview.